0: All right, now we are getting ready to, let's, yeah, let's uh, let's go to the message time here. Uh, will you pray with me? Father, you are good, and you love us deeply. Thank you for your kindness, your compassion for us. Uh, thank you for your grace that we can come to you just as we are, that you love us so deeply and dearly. Uh, we give our attention to you now and open our hearts. <clears throat> In Jesus' name, amen? All right, hey, over the next six weeks, we are going to be doing a series that's going to talk about the kind of church that we are here at Hope. Um, And there's a saying that we have here. Uh, Hope Covenant is a place where imperfect people belong, where God moves, lives change, and love acts. And over the next six weeks, we're going to unpack that a little bit. Um, What does our sign say out front? Anybody? You guys are on top of it. The late service is awake. Yeah, no perfect people allowed. And I love that. Like, what, what kind of, just quick feedback, what kind of, um, what kind of things, what, what message does that send to folks that aren't a part of here and just drive by? Anybody? You can all come. What else? We're inclusive. What else? Yeah. We're not hypocrites. We're not hypocrites. There's so much good that comes out of that. And and I love it. I, I love that slogan that we have on there, I guess it is, uh, because it shows that we are a church that leads with grace. We lead with grace because grace is central to everything that we do as followers of Jesus. Like our relationships have to be dripping in grace with extravagant, overflowing love that that can't help but spill out out of the bucket of our life and drip on everyone that we come in contact with. Think about this. Um, What's the one thing that the church has to offer that the people of our world can't get anywhere else? Like, I've been thinking about this, and, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to build homes For the homeless, or to feed the poor, or to donate to charity. Although, of course, I think that we who are followers of Jesus need to be leading in those areas. But the truth is, any person can feed the poor, any person can give to charity. Um, You don't have to be a Christian to try to impact changes for the better in our community, right? There's other traditions, there's other faiths, other teachers that offer wise moral instructions and talk about moral responsibility. And so the question, what's the one thing that the church has to offer that the world can't get anywhere else? I think it's grace. Simply grace. Like where in this world can you go to find grace? This is not a grace-filled world. Help me out here on the screen. Um, You get what you pay for, right? You reap what you So, there's no such thing as a free lunch. It's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a... Yeah, this is how our world works. A guy named Philip Yancey in his book, which I highly recommend, the book What's So Amazing About Grace, he writes this. The one thing that the world cannot do is it cannot offer grace. It cannot say to human beings... You were lost, but now you've been found. You were guilty, but now you've been pardoned. You were dead, but now you've been made alive. See, the truth is we are all imperfect people. We we all have a debt that we could not pay. We all have a burden that we cannot carry on our own. But Jesus comes, he comes into that with grace, with, with unearned favor, with reckless love full of passion and abandon. It's a guy named Tony Campolo, and he writes a book that I also highly recommend. It's an older book. It's called The Kingdom of God is a Party. And he tells a story of a time where he was called to uh, speak in Honolulu, Hawaii. And I hear that, and as a speaker guy, I'm like, man, Lord, send me. I can suffer like that for you, Jesus. We can, um, I guess it's a tough job. Somebody's got to do it. So um, he flies from New York City to Honolulu because of the time change, he finds himself at 3 30 in the morning, wide awake, ready for breakfast, and he goes downstairs in the hotel area to try to find a place to eat, but everything's closed, so then he goes out into the street and he wanders around a little while, only to stumble upon a 24 hour greasy spoon diner and he orders breakfast. We'll pick up the story with his words. Now, as I sat there munching on my donut and sipping my coffee at 3.30 in the morning, the door of the diner suddenly swung open, and to my discomfort, in marched eight or nine provocative and boisterous prostitutes. It was a small diner, and they sat on either side of me, and there I was, trapped. He said their talk was loud and crude. I felt completely out of place. I was just about to make my getaway when I overheard the woman sitting beside me say, Tomorrow's my birthday, she said to her friend. I'm going to be 39. And her friend responded in a nasty tone. So what do you want me to do? What do you want from me, a birthday party? What do you want? You want me to make you a cake and sing happy birthday? Oh, come on, the woman said, sitting next to me. I, I, I was just telling you it was my, my birthday. I, I, I don't want anything from you. I mean, why should you give me a birthday party? I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. Why should I start now? When I heard that, says Campolo, I made a decision. She will have a birthday party, and we will get her a cake. After all the other prostitutes left, uh, Tony was alone with the cook there, and the cook's name was Harry, and he sprung the idea on him, and unbelievably, Harry thought it was a great idea, and even volunteered to have the cake made. The next day, the woman who did the cooking must have gotten the word out to the street, he says, because at 3.15 a.m., every prostitute in Honolulu was in the place. I mean, think about this. If you know what Tony Campolo looks like, he's kind of an old guy, bald, Um, yeah, yeah. So there he is, (coughs) wall-to-wall prostitutes and Tony Campolo. Um, He said, at 3.30 on the dot, the door of the diner swung open, and in came Agnes, was her name, Agnes and her friend. He said, I had everybody ready. And when they came in, we all screamed, happy birthday, Agnes. Campolo says, never have I seen a person so flabbergasted, stunned and shaken. Her mouth fell open. Her legs seemed to buckle. Her friend grabbed her arm to steady her. And as she was led to sit at one of the stools along the counter, we all sang happy birthday to her. As we came to the end of our singing, her eyes were moistened, but then just as the birthday cake with all the candles on it was carried out, she lost it and began to weep openly. Agnes looked down at the cake, and then without taking her eyes off of it, she said, Look, uh, Harry, is it okay? I mean, like, is it all right with you? I mean, what I want to ask is, is it okay if I keep the cake for a little while? I mean, is it okay if we don't eat it right away? Harry shrugged and answered, sure, it's okay. If you want to keep the cake, keep the cake. I don't care if you take it home. Can I? She said. She got off the stool, picked up the cake, and carrying it like it was the holy grail, walked slowly toward the door, and as we all just stood motionless, she left. When the door was closed, there was a stunned silence in the place. And not knowing what else to say, he says, I broke the silence by saying, Well, what do you say we pray? (laughs) It's the go-to preacher line, right? He says, I prayed for Agnes. I prayed for her salvation. I prayed that God would be good to her and protect her and bless her life. When I finish, Harry leaned over the counter with a trace of hostility in his voice and said, Hey, you never told me you was a preacher. What kind of church do you belong to? He says, in one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws, bar- parties, that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. <laughs> Harry said, no, you don't. There ain't no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that, said Harry. Wouldn't we all? Paul says, wouldn't we all love to join a church that throws parties like that at 3.30 in the morning? Because the one thing that the church has to offer that the world cannot get anywhere else is grace. It's grace. See, Jesus said, you are the light of the world to his followers. You are the light of the world and the apostle Paul added, so let your light shine before men and women. Why? Because the one thing that the church, the, 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 pe- the people that are followers of Jesus have to offer to the world that they can't get anywhere else is grace. It's grace. Now, this grace thing, it's not just a warm and fuzzy idea. It's Our catchphrase from the sign out front, it's not just something that we kind of pulled out of thin air because it sounded good. The life of Jesus painted vivid pictures of what grace looks like. One of my favorite stories about this is found in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, and it's where we're going to spend our time this morning. Now, in this scene from Jesus' life that we're going to look at, we get to see how deep, how high, and how wide the love and grace of Jesus goes. So let me just set up the story for you before we read the text. Uh, What's happened is Jesus has been invited to dinner at the home of a Pharisee, a religious leader named Simon. Now to get the picture of how they would have dinner in those days, they didn't have chairs and tables like we do. Uh, What they would do to have supper is that they would sit on the floor on a rug and there would be a slightly elevated table, so then they would recline or stretch out on the floor and have their feet behind them and they would lean on one arm and use the other arm, the other hand, to eat. So what I'll do here is I'll read and comment, then we're going to go back and kind of walk a little more slowly through the story. Verse 36, One of the Pharisees asked Jesus over for a meal. So Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and sat down at the dinner table. Just then, a woman of the village, the town harlot, we'll stop for a second, some of your Bibles read uh, the phrases, a woman who had a sinful life, um, and this is a Greek term which is usually um, used to describe a prostitute, so you could say, a woman who was a prostitute, the town harlot, having learned that Jesus was a guest in the home of the Pharisee, came with a bottle of very expensive perfume and stood at his feet, weeping, raining tears on his feet. Letting down her hair, she dried his feet, kissed them, and anointed them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, like this is in his own head, right? If this man was the prophet that I thought he was, he would have known what kind of woman who is falling all over him. And then Jesus says to him, out loud, right? Simon, I have something to tell you. Oh, tell me. He's kind of like, hey, okay, tell me, teacher. What are you going to do to get yourself out of this one? That's probably what he's thinking. Jesus says, two men were in debt to a banker. One owed 500 silver pieces. The Greek there is denarii, which is about two years' wages. So one owes 500 pieces, two years' wages. Jesus says, the other owed 50, so a little closer to two months or so. But neither of them could pay up. So the banker canceled both debts. Now, which of the two would be more grateful? Simon answered, I suppose the one who was forgiven the most. That's right, said Jesus. Then turning to the woman, but still speaking to Simon, so just picture this here. He's looking at the woman. He's still talking to Simon. He says, do you see this woman? I came into your home. You provided no water for my feet, but she rained tears on my feet and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but from the time I arrived, she hasn't quit kissing my feet. Simon, so, mean, you provided nothing for freshening up, but she has soothed my feet with perfume. Impressive, isn't it? Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven... Little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, I just, I love this story. I love this story. And so I want to go back through it and kind of highlight some spots to give us a little more depth of kind of understanding and picture of what was going on when this story happened. So to do that, we draw back a little bit and go, okay, so what was going on in the life of Jesus when this story happened? So if we looked at the timeline of Jesus' life at this point, uh, he's kind of younger in his, or newer in his ministry, and his popularity had started growing. So this dinner would have been an opportunity for the Pharisees, these religious leaders, to find out who this Jesus guy was really is. Now, the Pharisees were the elite religious men of the day. They looked spiritual, they acted spiritual, they went to great lengths to be certain that everyone knew of their deep religious nature. And they probably wanted this opportunity to see, you know, is Jesus on our side? Like, does he line up with what we teach? And we're not sure why Simon invited him, but um, most likely he was aware of Jesus' popularity and and maybe he was curious to know a little more of Jesus' teaching on religious matters. Maybe he wanted to test Jesus. But either way, no matter the reason, Jesus could not have entered Simon's house unless Simon considered him somewhat of an equal in intellect. Now, As a Pharisee, Simon is a part of the dominant religious culture of the day. He's part of the Jewish elite in Israel. He's in a position of power and influence as a religious leader. And so he sees himself as standing in the place as a judge who determines the worth of those around him. Now likely these religious leaders have heard some of Jesus' teaching. Some of his methods are a little controversial. They probably have a little bit of a critical eye towards him. And if Jesus cared about these things, this dinner, like, it could have been a big career move for him. Like, if Jesus would have been concerned with landing his ministry on solid ground, ooh, this would have been his big chance. So Jesus shows up, but picture it, he walks in, and he and everyone there would have stepped right into an awkward situation. Like, right from the moment he walked in, it gets weird. Because back then, in those days, The servant of the house would take off the guest's sandals, wash his feet with water, and then anoint his head, freshen him up with some oil, and in the case of a rabbi like Jesus, then the master of the house would come and give him a kiss of greeting on the cheek, and then escort him to the head of the table, but instead, Jesus gets ignored, likely given the seat nearest the door, no kiss on the cheek, just a social slap on the face. Now, again, this is a culture where these kinds of things are a big deal. I mean, even, even thinking about the practical side of it as well, um, with the washing of the feet, like you're walking in dusty roads. There's no pavement. These guys are wearing sandals, and these roads are used by people and animals. And funny, the animals don't usually pull over to the side and drop their loads. So you're just walking, right? You're just walking through this. So it was common courtesy. It was very practical, but it was also ceremonial for them to have their feet washed when they came in. So that was a part of it. Um, oil was used for refreshing them, kind of freshening up before having a dinner. Um, the kiss of greeting. Has anybody ever experienced the kiss of greeting in some culture you've been in? Anyone ever been around one of those? Yeah. So when I was 20, 21, I was in Estonia. Um, my band was playing, and we had a thing we were doing at a, uh, with a church, and I was warned. I was told, hey, listen, <clears throat> some of the, uh, especially some of the older believers here um, they still do the kiss of greeting thing, so if it happens, you know, just don't don't be freaked out or anything. It's, I'm like, okay, cool, this is cool, I can do this. Um, and weird, when when we got done doing music, I saw the guy coming. He was like coming down the middle aisle. He's coming right toward me. He looked like Grizzly Adams, had just this bushy beard, like just a lot of facial hair. And I'm thinking, oh, how do I know that this guy's going to come? And I've got to be ready for that little kiss of greeting. And so he did, and he came, put his hands on my behind my head, and pulled me close and he kissed me on the lips. Now, nobody told me. (laughs) They said cheeks, so... How many of you are glad that we've done away with the kiss of greeting thing? That's not a... Yeah, me too. Um, Glad it's not a big deal anymore. But back then, it would have been a disrespectful thing to do. Right, Simon? didn't offer Jesus a kiss, no water for his feet, no oil for his face, and then into this very proper, very respected, very religious Pharisee's house, the dinner is crashed by a prostitute. Now, prostitutes were seen as the scum of the earth in the eyes of the Pharisees and in Jewish culture. Here's part of the problem, a little background on that. Um, These are male-dominated cultures. And so when, when a woman was widowed or orphaned, um, sometimes they saw no other recourse but to turn to this way to make a living. Now, if you know anything about Jewish culture, the law requires that you care for orphans and widows. So if there is a prostitute in your community, it is an indictment on these very same religious men who obviously had not done as a community what the law required to care for orphans and widows. So, somehow, she finds out that Jesus is at Simon's home, and she comes in, and immediately, in the minds of the Pharisees, they must have thought, oh, man, who saw her come in here? Like, what will people think? What message will this send to the people of of our town? This is a scandal. See, religious superior types, they worry about this kind of stuff. What will people think? But not Jesus. And she comes inside, hovers at the feet of Jesus, and he's still laying there with his feet outstretched behind him. And she begins to weep at his feet. And, and I wonder why. I wonder why. I, I wonder maybe, maybe that day she had heard him teach. And maybe that day was the first day that she realized how loved she was. That as imperfect as she was, she wasn't trash. She was valuable. She was loved unconditionally. And she weeps. Now, she likely had recognized the disrespect that Simon showed Jesus. No kiss, no water for the feet, no oil for his head. So, she goes, what, what, can I, what, can I, what can I do? What can I remedy? How can I honor him? And she takes what she has and pours it out. Now, her behavior, culturally back then, was scandalous, right? Kissing feet, unbound hair. No doubt the Pharisees were thinking, well, Jesus, here's your big chance. Make your stand here so people will know what you think of dirty, imperfect, sinful people. Like, show everyone here that you too are righteous and holy like us. The alabaster jar that she um, brought was a long-necked bottle that contained expensive perfume. Prostitutes in this day and age were extremely poor, so it is likely that this was her most prized possession. In fact, there's some studies and research that that say that this bottle may have represented her dowry that she had been saving up. This was her future in that culture to get her out of this lifestyle and give her hope for something else. And she pours it out. She takes her treasure and pours it out. Like the statement she makes here, she is staking her hope and her future. She is staking everything on Jesus. I mean, you know, she, she gets it. She knows how badly she needs grace, and she recognizes that Jesus is her only hope. And again, imagine this scene. And imagine what was going on in the Pharisees' minds by now they're like, hey, <clears throat> come on, Jesus. This is pretty weird stuff here. Do you actually, do you actually know her? I mean, come on. We got a lot of questions churning in our heads, and you better think fast, and what you'd say had better be good, because you're not winning points with us, and you're not winning points with other people. And in our theology, you're not winning points with God. So come on, kick her out of here now and do it loudly. But Jesus sees her as a woman, not a prostitute. He says, do you see this woman? He calls her a woman, not a whore. He sees her as a person made in the image of God. He doesn't excuse it. Ah, guys, listen, it's not what you think. No, no, no. Simon, do you see her? He offers no excuses. He allows her to continue. And when he finally does speak, Jesus tells a parable. Jesus actually tells a parable that becomes kind of a riddle, right? A creditor forgave two debtors. One owed a significant amount, like two months' pay. The other owed ten times as much. The creditor forgave both. Anybody have a a bill or a creditor that you wish was that generous right now? Like maybe the mortgage? Yeah, that'd be be amazing. Um, Jesus asked Simon, Now which of those two will love him more? (laughs) And just notice the tentative nature of Simon's response. He kind of hems and haws, well, I, yeah, I suppose, right, I suppose, I think Simon senses here that he's in trouble and he can't find a way out of it, because he knows once he admits that the one who is forgiven more probably loves more, then he's lost the argument, but he manages to spit it out. And then Jesus only has to say what is completely obvious, this woman is deeply Grateful because she's been forgiven much, while Simon was ungrateful, not even seeing his need for forgiveness at all. See, the real deal here, it wasn't about Simon's a bad guy because of his insensitivity as a host. No, no, no. The issue here was his spiritual pride. Like He worked so hard to obey God's law that he saw himself as superior to and above and better than everyone else around him. He, he, he could see this great gulf that separated this sinful woman from him but he could not imagine this pride and arrogance caused a distance between him and god and so if he perceived himself in need of any grace at all he was sure that he didn't need that much like okay well maybe i'm a little sinner and this woman on the other hand she's a mega sinner she was such a spiritual wreck that simon could not imagine her salvation And when he judges her, he's saying, what could God do with such a person? Why would God even bother? And the point of this story, of this parable, is this. The one who's been forgiven much, loves much. And Simon, that's why this woman is loving much. And Simon, it's also why you are not loving much. See, friends, this story of grace is a scandal. And this kind of grace is scandalous. I mean, you ever wonder why, you know, when you watch the story unfold and eventually the religious leaders have Jesus crucified, you ever wonder why did the religious leaders hate Jesus so much? Yeah, stories like this, there were big reasons why he was so hated by them. Stories like the prodigal son, the good Samaritan, all these stories. See, because what Jesus loved to do most was to extend grace to people, especially to the imperfect people that knew they didn't deserve it, and it got him into trouble all the time with the religious people. So it's a scandal. But grace is scandalous, isn't it? See, friends, I I love Jesus so much. He is the real deal. He acts with courage and strength He shows us how to live and love, how to offer grace to everyone. He's done it in my life over and over and over. Part of what I love about this story here is how Jesus just blows up the categories of the religious people by his acceptance of this woman. Uh, uh, uh. Like, religious people, they get so caught up in appearances and managing people's opinions and playing politics that that, that they miss out on what kind of God it is that we actually serve. Like, somewhere along the line, many Christians have gotten the idea that in order for us to be a good example to the world, we need to jump all over those we see as sinners, and, and so we need to judge them and make sure they know what we think about their bad behavior and immoral choices. So in the name of what we would call speaking the truth and standing up for what's right, we end up giving ourselves permission to place ourselves above others and to treat them with contempt. And when when we do that, and we have all done that, when we do that, we're trying to get people to change by withholding our love and approval for them. We withhold it from them, try to get them to change. I mean, some people actually call this, well, we're displaying the holiness of God. You know, God can't stand sin. He can't stand to be around sinful people. So in order to get people to change, we need to tell them that they are sinful and they better shape up. Okay. But one of the big problems with this type of thinking is this. Jesus never acted that way. He never acted that way. Jesus was never driven away from sinners. In fact, the Bible says that Jesus was a friend of what? friend of sinners. See, Jesus himself was always getting in trouble with the Pharisees, with the religious elite, for hanging out with the imperfect people, the sinners, the tax collectors, the common people. Like, he would eat with them. He would go to their parties. In fact, one of the criticisms of Jesus by the Pharisees was they said he was a glutton and a drunkard, because of the people that he hung out with. Like, they were so offended by his contact with the imperfect people that they deemed less than. Like, surely a godly and holy man would have nothing to do with those people. But all you have to do is read through the Gospels. And when you do that, you don't find Jesus spending any time condemning or scolding sinners. Like, those of you who know much about the Bible at all Who does Jesus save his harshest words, his harshest critiques for? Anyone? Yeah, the Pharisees, the religious people, not the so-called sinners. Again, Jesus was a friend of sinners. The common folk loved him. Scripture said they flocked to him. They loved hanging out with him. So contrary to what a lot of religious teachers and pastors might say, God's not afraid of our sin and struggle. Now, he doesn't just go, ah, no problem, no big deal, because he knows that when we make those choices, we're going down a road that doesn't lead to life and can lead to a lot of pain. But he's not afraid of our stuff. (laughs) He's not afraid of our imperfections. He doesn't push us away or shut us down. So if Jesus is that way, wouldn't it make sense for those of us who are followers of Jesus to follow his example Instead of wasting a lot of time worrying about all those sinners out there, what if what if what just 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 humor me? What if we spent our time finding ways to be kind, to love and serve, to pray for, to, to find ways to walk alongside people that don't yet know Jesus? In other words, what if the followers of Jesus actually followed the example of Jesus? so many of you do that here so well and that's why hope is the place that it is because the one thing that the church has to offer the one thing that the people of god and that's us has to offer that the world can't get anywhere else is grace it's grace And I know this from personal experience. Like there is no feeling in the world like the sensation of extending grace to a human being who desperately needs it. Seeing seeing somebody that was lost get found. Somebody that was dead become alive. And here at Hope, we make it clear with that tagline on our front sign, no perfect people allowed. This is a place where anyone can come as they are. We get that example from Jesus. People can come here. There's no need to put on a mask or pretend. No need to clean yourself up or pretend you know more than you know before you join us. Come as you are. Ryan and Cody, will you guys come? See, I think Jesus loves that about our community. (laughs) I know that he is so proud of this place because at Hope, imperfect people belong Because of grace. Because of grace. And as we get ready to go to the communion table, I want to wrap up with a couple questions out of this episode of The Life of Jesus for us to think about, to take home with us this week. And the first question is mostly for those of us who have followed Jesus for a while. Um, Here's the question. Will I be open to allowing God to show me when I drift into this Pharisee kind of tendency to to let God tap me on the shoulder and show me when I'm being harsh or unloving or when I am judging other people? Really, here's the question, and we'll put it on the screen. Am Am I willing to lay down the gavel and resign as the judge of the universe and instead learn to love others like Jesus loves them? Am I willing to do that? And the second question um, is for those of us, maybe you're struggling right now, or maybe you're kind of not sure about making a commitment to follow Jesus with your life. Maybe you're wondering about a relationship with God, and and so the question for you um, this morning and to take with you this week would be, um, will I decide to get to know this Jesus, the real Jesus, and start following him? Cody and Ryan are going to play a song before we go to the communion table. And this song is called uh, Reckless Love. This song has just, the last month or so, I've worn it out. I mean, if it was a cassette tape, those of you that know what that is, yeah? If it was a cassette tape, it'd be worn out by now, okay? Thank God for digital. But I just, over and over, the song and the words just keep sinking into my heart about the love of God, the grace of God that is extended to me and to you. So, as we prepare our hearts before communion here, um, The guys are going to play this song, and I just encourage you to open your hearts to this love, this grace of God.
1: been so, so kind to me, and oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, and oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves night, and, and I couldn't earn, it. no, I don't You have been so, so good to me When I felt no worth You paid it all for me and You have been so, so kind to me And all oh, the overwhelming no shadow you won't light up No mountain you won't climb up Coming after me There's no wall you won't kick down Light you won't tear down Coming after me There's no shadow you won't light up Mountain you won't climb up Coming after me don't deserve it still you give yourself away and all oh.
0: our Jesus. This is our God. His reckless love is for you. It's for you. And Jesus loved us so much that he gave himself for us. He loved us to death.